afternoon sessions we do offer these heart practices. Cheryl did uh, metta practice yesterday, experiential practice of um, trying to identify, access this quality of loving kindness, kind friendliness, goodness, however you hold that idea. There's a lot of ways in which we can hold that idea. And I was talking last night about equanimity, about how the uh, mindfulness practices, which is known as sati bhavana, the development of the mind, uh, leads to equanimity. And also metta bhavana, which are the heart practices, the cultivation of the heart, also lead to equanimity. Uh, not all teachers teach metta bhavana. This is not a practice that you'll get on all insight retreats. Uh, a lot of teachers that I, that I really love and respect and have sat with don't teach heart practices as a guided meditation. There's a wide range of views and uh, opinions about why one should or should not teach those practices. Uh, the, the reason I say that is because me and Cheryl really offer all of our instructions uh, in the spirit of you to investigate for yourself to see what is going to be helpful for you in your experience. It's understood that all of the Buddhist teachings are what's called ehipasako, which translates as come and see for yourself. Does this type of practice, this type of inquiry have value and meaning and is it helpful for you in your life? If it is, then to cultivate that and if, if it's not, then, you know, no big deal. There's no obligation here. In Dharma, there's no obligation. One of the reasons why I always teach Metta Bhavana is because I spent many years not practicing it and it found that it didn't get me very far. In fact, if we could rewind 20 years ago and if I was on this retreat 20 years ago, I wouldn't be in the room right now. I'd be taking a walk or having some tea. I would have intentionally avoided the session I'm about to teach. I don't find that to be as humorous as you might. The Dharma is filled with irony. Also. And because the uh, cultivation of the heart is not something that can be systemized, where mindfulness practices, we have the Satipatthana and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, it's very kind of almost to a fault specific on do this and then do this and then notice this and be with this. I think the reason why the heart practices are more difficult and why some people steer away from the practice in this way is that I think that they're the nonverbal component to things like kindness, compassion, gratitude. 
there's something about it that can't be transmitted through language. And this is also true with emotion. In the human system, there's a nonverbal component to emotion. And it's the everyday experience of trying to explain to somebody how you feel or what's happening for you and fumbling with the words. Have you ever done that? I just can't seem to articulate in words how I feel. And there's a very specific reason why you're unable to do that. Because there's a nonverbal component. My teacher, who I've been reconnected with in, a, in the last several years, Stephen Smith, calls these Brahma Vihara heart practices beautiful spiritual emotions. And was encouraged by him to continue to teach Brahma Vihara as part of insight practice because of the benefit that can arise from turning towards the heart in a way where we're using language and imagery and iconic representation for ideas of compassion and kindness and gratitude. So when we look at the way metta works in a system that we start with this seed, we could say, of metta, of this intention. So in the schema of practice and the cultivation of the Eightfold Path, and really also in the mechanics of mental development, these Brahma-Vihara practices, kindness, is something that we establish in the intention aspect of the mind, the intention. My intention is to be kind. My intention is to care about my struggle. My intention is to have gratitude and appreciation for the good things in my life. My intention is to understand complexity and learn how to respond appropriately. But just having the intention, as I'm sure you can notice from your own experience, doesn't guarantee that the outcome will be what you expected it to be. But just because that's true, it doesn't mean that the intention is empty or unuseful or unimportant. It just means we maybe need to get that motor, that mechanic, we need to put more time in the operating of that system. So I think from that perspective, looking at it as the cultivation of skillful intention, the heart practices, they lose their mysterious quality, the elusiveness of those. That makes sense to me when people say that, well, just try to have the intention to be more compassionate. I hear that and go, oh, I think I can, I think I can do that. The practices, so we'll be working on two practices today. Uh, we'll do some, spend some time developing compassion, and then we'll spend some time developing appreciation. On these shorter retreats, I like to teach them together because I feel it's a nice way experientially to see the range that can be experienced from something like compassion all the way to appreciation and making that, that, that shift.
one of the places where these ideas of compassion and appreciation are really identified and explained in a way that's maybe more pragmatic is in the Buddhist teaching on Buddhist psychology and the Abhidharma. They're called the illimitables. And they're part of a 26 set of beautiful mental states. So these illimitables are considered beautiful mental states, beautiful mind states, that are conditioned, they're meant to meet certain conditions. So we wouldn't think or we don't want to assume that we need to be compassionate all the time. Compassion isn't a quality of mind that we need to have access to all of the time, but it's a quality of mind we want to have access to when the conditions are painful, when the conditions are struggle, difficult emotion, hardship, loss, when, the, when our life is high stakes, pain, suffering, we want to be able to call to mind this mental state, this heart state of compassion so we can learn to care about that experience. So it's appropriate and useful in that circumstance or condition. But it's not just a choice per se. So it's in our best interest, I believe it's in our best interest, to spend some time cultivating these in formal sitting practice so when you do find yourself in those conditions, you are prepared. And so just as it's understood that there's an illimitable, there's a limitless amounts of pain and suffering in this world. There's no end. Just so there's no end to the amount of compassion that one can develop. It's illimitable. It's limitless possibility. The amount of compassion that the system can actually generate. That's why it's called an illimitable. There's no limit, the Buddha says. So we want to be able to really prime the pump of compassion and get it working for us in a way. Same for appreciation, which is the other side of the coin. It's, it's gearing the mind, inclining the mind towards goodness, reflecting, remembering, considering the good things in our life, the joy, the connection, the abundance, all the pleasure of the world. There's a lot of there's a, a limitless amount of beauty in the world. Unlimited amount. So, there's a way in which we can access this quality of appreciation to meet that limitless beauty. And when these are applied and developed, the fruition uh, is equanimity. It's this understanding that there's a limited amount of beauty and tragedy, joy and sorrow. And I want to be prepared to respond, to relate to all of that. And I don't know about you, but when I just hear these concepts, it kind of makes my mind stretch. I'm like, that can't be right. <laughs> it's got to be one or the other, man. The black and white thinking is deeply ingrained in my psyche. 
like unlimited sorrow and beauty? Wait a minute. Are you sure? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure now. And, and because of impermanence, because of change, we're going to find ourselves in constantly being confronted by these two dilemmas over and over and over again. It's not going to stop until we're able to hold our experience with some degree of equanimity. And so part of the other, the other confusion, I think, around these practices is trying to see that there's a heart quality. Sometimes there's a sentimental component to compassion. And then there's also a mental state. There's a, there's a mental training component. And I think that we sometimes feel or we think that to have a, the development of compassion, we need to have some sort of visceral experience. And I don't think that that's true. And the Buddha talks about compassion in two specific ways that people often confuse. He talks about karuna, which is the term most people are familiar with. And karuna is just the mental development of the intention, the mechanics, the intention, the mental state, the reaching out to meet the pain and anguish of the world with an intention to hold that with compassion, with a quality of caring deeply for that which hurts. That's what compassion is. It's the ability to care deeply for that which hurts. And then there's this other definition uh, in the Pali, is anukampa, which translates as a term that you've probably heard before when teachers will say a quivering of the heart in response to pain. Coming into contact with somebody else's pain or anguish is that kind of feeling in the heart, that quivering in the heart. That's anukampa. That's not karuna. We're not trying to cultivate that quivering in the heart. But what happened for the Buddha, it was actually that quivering in the heart that inspired him to teach in the first place. So that feeling, that frail, vulnerable, shaky heart feeling, is often the inspiration for why we would want to develop something like karuna. So we have to be careful we don't get confused and think that when we're practicing compassion, we're trying to have that visceral quivering experience. We're not trying to cultivate that so much. That might be an outcome of the practice, but we're really trying to incline the mind towards that seeing pain through the lens of compassion rather than aversion or anger or probably more likely fear. It's not so much that I hate pain. It's that I'm scared of it. And I'll do all kinds of strange and interesting and bizarre things to avoid it. But if I see pain, my pain, your pain, the, world of, the pain of the world through the lens of compassion, I feel more equipped to handle it. I feel confident. I feel up for the challenge. I feel resourced in that way. Like, oh, I'm, this is going to be scary and painful and I don't want to do it, but I, but I think I can handle it. I feel equipped. 
Does the difference of those two make sense? Because I think that, I know for me, I spend a lot of time trying to cultivate or practice with compassion and I, and I had this sense that I was trying to make this feeling arise. And that if the feeling wasn't arising, then there were, the, the compassion was, was not authentic or true. I think we have to watch out for that. We tend to be sentimental that way. It's like, when is it going to happen? When am I going to feel the thing? And it's not so much about feeling that thing as much as it's just a recognition that this is something that you value. So part of the development of the heart practices, I think, in a very systematic way, is really we're just trying to get the three factors of the Eightfold Path working for us. So in the view, the view, is part of my view, is part of my value, do I think compassion is something that's valuable? I value the quality of compassion. Maybe even you have to start right there. Maybe you don't. Some people probably don't. Many people, perhaps, think that compassion is weakness. So we have to kind of, is this something that I value? Is this something that I want to view the world through the lens of compassion more? So it just starts as an idea in the mind, as a value. Do we value that quality? And then we say, yes, I think that's right. That makes sense. Going to try to take that view and get it into my intention, my mental cultivation, my well-wishing, my seeing that you're in pain and at least beginning to wish you to have some ease. Which is, you know, not always easy. People, sometimes people that we don't like so much when they're hurting, we can take pleasure in that. We can probably think of examples of that. That sort of ill will, the Buddha calls it, one of the poisons, or one of the unskillful intentions is wishing harm on somebody else. And that's a tough negotiation, too, because when we look at the world or the people in the world or the people in our lives, there's some people we might want bad things to happen to them. But that's ill will. It's cultivating an ill will, non-compassion. So our goal is to have compassion for, really for ourselves first. If it's as the saying goes, charity starts at home. So what we'll do today is really try to draw the sense of compassion out for ourselves and that intention. And then that intention is backed by speech, by language, by <coughs> concepts, by words, by language. Have you noticed that your thinking affects how you feel sometimes? You ever think your way into a bad mood? <laughs> you ever think your way into some suffering earlier this morning? So if, if thinking has that much of an impact on my experience, maybe a thinking in a different way also, maybe compassion can work in the same way. If I can think myself into worry, into self-doubt, into fear, into anger, maybe I can use thinking and words to cultivate compassion. 
Maybe the system works both ways, and I think that it does. So when we use the phrases in, in these practices, sometimes we can get, um, I know for me, I felt that they were inauthentic or contrived, or that they were aspirations. Or, but it's just using the mind. If the mind generates everything, then why not use it to generate compassion? It's just efficient. <laughs> That's all it is. So we use phrases, specific phrases, to try to inspire or to prompt the arising of the state of mind that cares. And then we will do some imaging, reflecting on the suffering in our lives, reflecting on anything that's happened or currently happening recently that's been difficult and painful. Sometimes I call this trigger practice. That's why I like to teach gratitude and compassion in, in a same session because some of you maybe are having a hard time right now and some of you are probably feeling really great. And I always would be confused if I was like feeling all this gratitude and so psyched for the practice that I come in and they're doing a compassion session. I'm like, oh man, you're going to bum me out now. <laughs> I was like, all this gratitude in my heart. <laughs> Come in here and make me think about suffering. I spent all morning. Where was the suffering session at 8 a.m. this morning when I needed it? So when you think about it as just a, a timeline, if you really kind of want to slow things down in slow motion, we, we start with an idea of, of compassion or appreciation. And just considering whether that's something that's valuable to us that we would like to develop. And then we get that going in our intention, motivation. Well-wishing, perhaps, we could say. And then we just kind of say these phrases. And so the saying of the two things, there's the saying of the phrase is one thing. Is, is the intention. But actually more interestingly and maybe more importantly is noticing the spaces after the phrase is said. Does the body get tight? Do we resist the phrase? Does it evoke emotion? Are we scared of the phrase? Does the phrase make us feel self-conscious or even maybe shame? What happens after that? And that's where we really try to use some stability of awareness to say like, can I let myself receive the wishes I'm offering without getting resistant, without getting tight? And I have found over the years it's been fascinating how my somatic reaction to just a thought in my mind, early on I would say, they used to make a, I never teach it this way, but the initial metaphrases, they used to have us say, well, may I be happy? And just, just that idea alone would be enough to just get me in my car in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just being like, is it really? And just having to confront myself, I'm like, has it really come to this, Dave? <laughs> has it gotten so bad? that I'm willing to sit quietly in a room and say to myself, may I be happy? <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs>
Wow. How desperate am I? And, you know, for years it was, it was almost impossible to do that. Because what happens oftentimes, you might recognize in these phrases, you have to be aware of, is sometimes what happens in the psychological mind is the opposite arises. So I would say, may I be happy? And my mind would say, I'm not happy. <laughs> and I'd say, may I be at ease? And my mind would say, I'm not at ease. And I'd be like, well, may I be happy? Like, yeah, I'm not happy. I just told you. <laughs> would you like to know why? <laughs> I would actually be happy if you would do the things that you're supposed to do. And then I would get in this total battle. And then I would go have some tea. <laughs> right, I'm out of here. And then I would tell the teachers about it. I'm like, I tried it for like two minutes and it didn't work for me. They're like, well, maybe that's not enough time. So just watching that, having a sense of humor about that, I think is, is crucial in these things. So as we um, move into a, a sitting practice around this, if you want to just stand up for a moment, you can. If you want to try to just let your body stretch, 